This is part one of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. All right, so we're doing the permaculture smackdown again, and we're about to uh, continue with where we were last time talking about the, you know, the building codes, if you will, at Wheaton Labs. So, like, what are my obnoxious points about what I need to have done here and, like, what's cool, what's not cool, stuff like that. But before we started recording, we were talking about this collection of about 20 straw bales that I have. And I think I started off with about 60, and now I'm down to just 20. And uh, and there was uh, somebody here who wanted to buy a bunch of my straw bales. And uh, and so I I pointed out that I uh, I bought those straw bales, those organic straw bales, for five bucks a bale. And the the person's like, Oh yeah, cool. I'll take all of them. Wait, 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 wait. I didn't say I was going to sell them for five bucks a bale. I mean, I'm not looking to profit or anything. Well, then what? Like six dollars a bale? No, no. Two people had to go like three and a half hours out to get them. And then they were there for two hours and then three and a half hours back. And, uh, so there's, there's all that fuel, all their time and stuff like that. And it's like, well, that doesn't add very much. And it's like it more than doubles the cost of that, of that straw there, buddy. And on top of that, we had to store it properly. And those bales have been moved and moved and moved. They, I think they've been moved six times to keep them dry. It's been a lot of work. I wouldn't be surprised if I currently have Forty to fifty dollars a bale into this stupid straw right now, and uh, and it's like so. Of course, you don't want to pay that, and yet if I tried to sell them to you, even at cost, you would feel you're ripped off, and I would feel and, and and I would still feel like I'm a dumbass for selling them at cost because if I sell them, I'm just going to need some more later. And then I got to go get it again, or my source might be gone and I got to start the search all over again. And so, in fact, this year we, uh, we needed some hay. We wanted some organic hay for some mulch. Not a lot, maybe a dozen bales or so, but our source is all sold out. And just the thought of trying to find organic hay over again is, is just unbearable. So we just didn't get it. We're without. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I know that like for when people come here during the PDJ or something and then they build a thing and they're like, can I take this home? Our general policy is like, figure out what the materials cost is and double it. And that kind of covers the cost of us getting it and I don't know, power tools and stuff like that. You know, it's like probably going to be okay. And, uh, but this stupid straw has just, you know, turned into this most ridiculous thing about storage and moving it uh, between projects and stuff like that. So, and we're going to, yeah. 
Yeah, it's not a small thing to store. You, you have it in the berm shed, and then as that was being worked on, you have to move it from one side to the other and back and forth as so the cells are being built. There was a bunch of that. Uh, there was uh, also keep it way off the ground because as we're working on a on a cell in the berm shed, it's possible there could be rain. Um, and then uh, I think for four months, uh, it sat inside the classroom, which worked out okay during the COVIDs because no one's coming to an event here anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, but it's like, it's just, it's it's got so much put into it. I I can't. I'm I am not okay with I just it's it's let's just call it that I got a psychosis around these bales of straw at this time. And uh maybe the people that are coming here for the uh uh the Rocket Mass Eater Jamboree, which starts in less than a week, maybe they all want to bring twenty bales of organic uh hay and we can, you know, use that for mulch. And then I imagine every person is going to be like, nope, not doing it. <laughs> you know, Mark, aren't, I think you're flying to the event. You're, you will yeah, get 50 bucks a bale for, uh, <laughs> you know, as, a, as baggage. That, that could be a little tough. I was, I was thinking if anything I, I could bring would be a side. Uh, but even that, you know, they sort of ca- cast some glances askew at the Grim Reaper hopping on the plane. That would be hilarious. Um, but, and Oakland, you're driving. Don't you want to fill your rig up? I bet you could stack a dozen bales on top of your rig on the way out here. It'll only probably cost you an extra hundred dollars in fuel to get here. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, so it's, Finding the organic stuff is tough. It's it's a it's a pain. So um, we make the best of it, and uh, and that straw. There's just certain things you got to do where you need straw and nothing else will do. Now I thought it was really cool this year when uh, Uncle Mud uh, needed to do some slip straw and he used uh, napweed. Napweed. Yeah. That was just amazing. <laughs> uh, do you think that do you think that will hold up over time? I think it will. I'm really curious. I would really like to know. I wanna I wanna hear all about it. But uh it I mean they they they, they got this far. The 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 slip straw walls are in. It's like hot diggity dog. So um feeling feeling good about it. All right, so the reason why we talk about straw is because we we were looking for, like, where did we leave off last time? And we're talking about the duff layer on a wafati. And and granted, I mean, like, for example, Allerton Abbey has the um, umbrella on, and we elected to skip the duff layer. And um, most of it kind of went like this. I, I think it was Fred and I uh, out there putting, uh, defining the umbrella and uh, getting it, you know, getting it in place. And it was November. Uh, things were freezing up, and it was looking like it was going to freeze hard any time now, and everything would turn to cement. And... Um, and it was just the two of us out there putting in these long days. And it's like, I just, I just can't do it. 
I just we I let's just make it simpler and not put down the duff layer and who knows, maybe it'll be fine. And uh it'll be an experiment. Now um A, it has never frozen inside of Alex and Abby since we put on this umbrella. Never. And so we've been tracking it with tracking thermometers and stuff like that. It hasn't frozen. Um, which is saying something because it did get down to, um, to zero. And so, um, damn. Now this is, this year's going to be the first ATI test and, um, uh, we'll see how we do. But, uh, um, we've also been working on all summer long. There's been a focus on the people living in there to charge the mass. And, um, and in fact, I think, uh, uh, word is that there were some days where it's like, she can't take any more, Captain. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was, it was warm. It got to be warm in there, which is unusual for a Wofati, but they've been very good at like, Oh, is it a hot day? Open all the windows, let all the heat in, and then you're cool in the Wafati, even though the windows are wide open on a really hot day. And we had a lot of hot days. Mm-hmm. But um basically the, the resident said, um, uh hey, you know, this is starting to kind of suck. Like eighty degrees is is no longer, you know, it's not comfortable. Whereas that that nice sweet seventy two was. <laughs> and and I said your comfort is more important than you know trying to charge the mass. But I kind of I gotta say so I'm I'm I'm, I'm kind of leaving the uh, building codes thing and and just going on about Wafati stuff. I think that the way that the thermal inertia works, so there's this huge mass surrounding the entire building. Um and it, and it's like the way that I think it works is that it works kind of like in pulses. So, like, if you have 400-degree days in a row, then at the the mass will absorb that, but it absorbs it slowly. I think, I think that the heat travels through the mass at a pace of, like, maybe one foot every two weeks. That's just a guess. And so, um, because it's supposed to be 20 feet is where the thermal inertia point is. So, um, I don't know, maybe it's closer to a foot and a half. You also have the, the, the walls being wood where obviously some, some parts of that are more wood, you know, because they're round. And so you do have a bit of an insulation between that interior air and that thermal mass, not the floor, but the walls at least. Um, so, so there is sort of like a, a limiting factor when it comes to, if you compare it to John Haight's version of having a concrete shell and that would just absorb that, that air, the heat in the air quicker than having that, you know, uneven layer of wood on the inside shell. Oh, sure. But now wood is, has also has, uh, properties similar to dry dirt in that, um, it is it is a conductor as well as an insulator. Um, however, I suspect that heat will move through wood faster than it would through dry, dry dirt. 
Um, I kind of get the impression too that solid wood is more insulative than dry dirt. So it's got, so it's like it's got the same properties, only completely different. And so, but, uh, so there's going to be some of that where the heat is going to move through the wood into the mass, but it'll be different. But there's all, there is lines of exposed mass, um, uh, throughout. So there's, so there is that. Um, and, uh, uh, but the bottom line is, is that for the longest time inside of, uh, Allerton Abbey, it was very comfortable, even though it was very hot outside. But I think what happened is, is that that first foot absorbed a bunch of hundred degree days all in a row and, um, you know, hadn't, had not yet carried it very far. Mm-hmm. But I imagine that, um, if like, let's say two weeks passed of like normal weather and then another hundred degree day came, I think it would have been like, 74 inside instead of 72. Uh, and you you are trying to, to kickstart it too as far as the charging. So yeah. doing things sort of opposite of what you'd normally do where, okay, it's 100 degrees out, but it's going to be, you know, 65 at night. Normally you might leave the windows cracked during the day so you get a little bit of air but not a lot of hot air. And then at night you would open those windows up and make sure that it was nice and cool for the next day. At least that's how we do it here. I was, I was grinning when you said that it, it got up to an uncomfortable 80 degrees and I'm sitting in my house right now and it does 80 degrees in here. And that's like, yeah, if it gets up to 84, 85, I might, you know, try to do something with the AC, but if it's, a cool 80, that's great. <laughs> but then here, it's like, well, I come home from work and it might be 92 degrees in the house and you have to try to cool it down. But, uh, yeah, well, you, it doesn't get quite live... so cold here though in the wintertime. This is Southern California. So, yeah, uh, yeah, usually pretty mild. You're, you're in the San Diego area, right? And so. Yeah, for now. Yeah. And it kind of, are you a little inland? I'm about five miles from the coast. Okay. So All it's right. fairly mild here. Oh, okay. It's, it's, cause I, I, I worked a contract in San Diego and, um, uh, I was like, uh, I, I worked in the gas lamp district and I lived in Pacific Beach. So, I mean, like, I was right on, I was really close to the water and that temperature rarely changed. But I understand if you go five miles in, then it's like, now it gets hot. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I'm probably five degrees warmer in the summer than all along the coast. Okay. But then, yeah, I have a coworker that's like 20 miles east of here and his is about 15 degrees warmer still during the summertime. So, yeah. Okay. I just, it just seemed like, uh, when you go inland, everybody kind of lives a life of hugging an air conditioner all day long. Yeah, uh, yeah. Throughout the summer. And, and it's like, and then when you, uh, if you go inland and you try to walk outdoors for, um, 15 minutes or so, it's kind of like, wow, this is some serious heat. <laughs> this is, this is the real stuff. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So here's, here's the point I was trying to make. And, and then I'm going to come back to the thing about years. And that is, what I was trying to make is that, I kind of feel like it pulses in. And, uh, and so it might take a week or two until the mass is, is ready to like suck all the heat out of the room again. 
And, uh, and then it's going to keep doing that over and over again. Now, another thing is, is that during the summer event, somebody asked me about this and, and basically the point you brought up, which is that this is the first year. So you got to, this is the first charge of that mass. So you've got, you know, a much bigger job to do here. And, and I agree with that entirely. And, uh, this guy brought it up and he says, well, like, how many years might it take until the mass is fully charged? And I said, um, I kind of quoted Don Stevens's work where Don Stevens felt like it was five years. And so the, the first year that the temperature in the house during the winter might be something like 67. And then on the second year, it might be 69. And the third year, 70, then 71, then 72. So it's like you, you want 72, but it might take five years until you get that. So I told him five years, and then his response was something like, well, then the whole structure is absolutely worthless. And I, no, it's like that's that that's why you can still heat it. <laughs> it's not like you go in there and it's like, oh, I wish I could have like you know wood heat, but no, I can't. You know, I'm six feet away from the door now. It's impossible. It's like, uh, there's already you know a rocket heater in there as a cooktop, but it's like Cooper Cabin. You have a rocket mass heater in the living room, so that's well, why it's there. Okay. <laughs> you might ideally don't need it as much in the future as everything stabilizes. But, you know, that's the nice thing about Cobb. If you decide, wow, it's been three years since we fired this thing up now that we're, you know, say 10 years into it, well, you can just sort of dig it right up and put it somewhere else. So I got to, I got to counter a couple of things that you just, and, and one of them is, is that what's in there is a rocket cooktop. It isn't a heater at all. Well, right, right. Allerton Abbey. Sorry, I was talking yeah. about. Cooper oh, okay, Cabin. okay. Well, let's let's talk about Allerton Abbey for just a sec. So okay. it's got a rocket cooked up in there, but the whole thing is designed to heat that surface and then take all the rest of the heat and get it out. As, yeah. As quick as fast as possible, because because you don't want it because a rocket cooked up, you don't want it to heat the space. Now, it might be wise in the long run, maybe. To make it so that we rearrange this a little bit to put more heat into the structure before it goes outside. Because one of the interesting things we've learned about this rocket cooktop is like you go in there and then you'll cook. You, you're going to do a whole bunch of cooking. Does not heat up the space. The space does not get warm. Doesn't get hot. I mean, if you do a whole bunch of cooking inside the Fisher Price house, boo, that warms the space up nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, although in the Fisher Price house never gets too warm, but I bet, I bet in a, in your house, Mark, or in your house, Opalin, if you did like three hours of cooking, losing all the burners and stuff like that, you're putting on a Thanksgiving spread. You're going to open a window to cool it off. Right. And it's like, don't have to do that in the Fisher Price house. And I think the reason is, is because we've got a rocket mass heater in there. And I think the rocket mass heater literally absorbs the heat from the room and, um, and takes that excess heat. So it's like, uh, um, on a day when we do Taco Tuesday, <clears throat> there'll be so many people in there and so much cooking. And that's another thing too. If you have a bunch of friends over, like if you have 20 people over for something, aren't you open up all the windows? Cause it just gets too hot. In there. Yeah. We don't so have to the, do that. 
yeah, if you don't have any kind of thermal mass, then the space heats up, whether it's bodies or cooking. But Fisher Price House having the rocket mass heater mass, and then of course the Wafati, you've got mass all around it. It's just going to soak up that that heat. And like you said, eventually it's it's the temperature differential that determines how much heat is absorbed or released. So if that wall is say 60 degrees and the mass behind it is 58 degrees, and it gets warm inside, you start to you know trans that heat flows into the wall and then eventually that wall might be 75 degrees. And so it's not absorbing as much heat as quickly uh, as it did when it was cooler. But eventually that soil behind it starts to absorb heat as well, or the heat flows right from hmm. hot to cold. So that's so all the deltas. So one of the things I, um, I thought of, is that first of all we're going to do the test? And there is there is no rocket mass heater. There's no heater in there at all. There's just the 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 cooktop is not a heater, and it's not designed to be a heater in any way. It just won't. This is really not going to do that. Um, so um, uh, that's kind of out. But um, I kind of feel like so um, earlier this year. I had a cellulitis and I'd have a, a fever every day. I just couldn't seem to get warm and I was cold. And so I did all these things to warm myself up. Uh, you know, first I got to say hot water bottles are just absolute magic. But, uh, the thing I got to thinking was, is like, you know what? We, yeah, I mean, like, let's suppose that Allerton Abbey, the whole test is a great success. Like the temperature in there, um, holds around 65 this year. You know, like it gets to be a really cold day outside. The lowest temperature it gets inside is like 65. It's like, wow, that's, that is awesome. That's amazing. This is working great. This is, so next year it'll probably be a little warmer and then et cetera, you know, so on and so forth until, um, five years later, it's holding steady at 72. And it's like, that would be just fantastic news. Like, let's say that that's what happens. I kind of think that maybe, maybe we still need to do a rocket heater of some kind in there. And maybe what it is, is it's, it's just something that we add on to the rocket cooktop. So that way, rather than just shooting all the heat outside, that it tries to shoot as much heat into the room as it can. Because it's like um, maybe uh, if we can get uh, a five-degree boost in the room, that'll help when somebody is sick, when they've got a fever and they need to warm up significantly Yeah, uh, kind of a thing. But then the, um, the other thing is, is that the um, – even if you're doing it, even if you're, if you're uh, cooking something in the middle of summer, it'll still be relatively cool inside as the mass absorbs all that extra heat. And then, um, cause then we're just talking about, you know, minor adjustments throughout the year of opening and closing the windows to make yourself more comfortable. And, um, and it gives you a little bit of a heat advantage. So. I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of, this is an idea I've been having. I mean, maybe we need a separate thing to be a heater, but all I'm thinking is, is like there should always be something in the house in case somebody is sick and you want to get the temperature up quite a ways. So 
yeah, it makes sense if you could have a, a bypass that goes into a bell and, you know, have that, that exhaust go through the bell when needed. And then if not, it just goes straight up the chimney and out. Yeah, that's not bad. That's a good idea. I like that. All right. So, um, okay. I think I said everything I wanted to say about all the different things we're talking about there. All those, all those different tangents. So, um, but today we're going to talk about, so you wanted to talk about, uh, the duff layer on a wafati and what materials are, are okay and not okay for that duff layer. True? Yes. Cause I figure it's probably pretty easy to find straw bales that aren't organic. And so my question was going to be, well, if it's, you, you certainly do not want to have say standard straw bales used as mulch or anything where it's going to get into the soil and the very likely persistent herbicides that are still on that straw, um, then polluting that environment. Um, so my question was, well, if it's going to be in this insulation layer with a plastic layer above and below it, uh, sort of isolating it from the surroundings, and you would hope it's not going to rot anytime soon where it would have to be replaced, um, you know, if, if that's an option then. Um, otherwise, it seems like the the easiest option, um, if you're going to put a junk pole fence around your property and you're going to be cutting down larger trees for the posts and beams that you're going to have a lot of that wood duff just from the branches and things you're going to chop up um, that's usable as well. So I right. just wanted to see what the options were. Okay. Uh, anything uh, that might contain persistent herbicides such as non-organic uh, straw. No, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say no. I got a bunch of reasons to it. And I'm gonna to get to all that. Now, I was asked uh, by one of the ants a few years ago, how about using cardboard? So the idea is, is it's like okay, I've, I've like I'm laying down my umbrella, and I'm uh, laying down like the dirt that that shapes the umbrella, and I'm worried about rocks poking holes into the membrane. And so they got this idea of like maybe putting down a bunch of cardboard, like maybe even as a layer or two, um, uh, as a duff layer. And uh, there was some talk about like even putting down a bunch of uh, duff and then putting down cardboard on top of the duff to help to try to protect the uh, membrane a little bit. And uh, I approved that. I I'd had to think about it for a while. But the, the thing is, is that the, when you pull off the top and you see the cardboard, like if you're going to take it all apart later, like it's 80 years later and you're taking it apart, and you see the cardboard, you know what the toxicity of cardboard is. And so you know how you're going to deal with that. And you're, you know, you're most likely going to burn it or something like that. Um, but um, there are people who choose to use it in horticultural endeavors, and that would include Bill Mollison and Sepp Holzer. 
But those same two dudes would never use um, conventional straw or hay for the obvious mm. reasons. And so I kind of feel like, A, cardboard is going to be about 20 times safer to use in anything organic. And B, I think most people would prefer to use it for something, burn it or use it for something else than to use it in a horticultural effort, especially at Wheaton Labs. So yeah, I, I could see where if you got um, cardboard that's, say, used for produce, there tends to be a little wax coating on it, um, and that would help help protect it from breaking down from the water. I've gotten some cardboard boxes before from work, and I was putting it down and then putting mulch over it with the intent of keeping um, grass from growing up through it. And I noticed some of those boxes, there's like a fine plastic web mesh that is glued in between the layers of paper. So you do not see it or feel it. But a couple years later, that cardboard is all broken down. And now I have this plastic mesh that's sitting there in the dirt. So, yeah, that would be a concern of, of not knowing exactly, you know, getting like an Amazon box or something like that. There's a good chance there might be some plastic in that cardboard until you tear it apart and check. You know, we're kind of coming back to this point that you made about like, well, it's going to be buried a long time. And then, so it's kind of out of the way stream. It's out of, out of sight. It's, it's, it's not being biologically active in our systems. And uh, it contains plastic, and the membrane does too. And so we've already got a membrane there. Yeah. But but now what you were kind of suggesting is is like, well, what if I put this non-organic straw? In? It's going to be locked up, and it doesn't. So it kind of doesn't matter. And it's like my thought is is that when it gets uncovered, say eighty years later, or or whatever. I mean, it'll, it'll appear to be straw and therefore totally open to being used in, uh, horticultural endeavors. But isn't there that half-life of the, the herbicide? Absolutely. What is the half-life of the herbicide when it is, uh, sitting on top of active soil, uh, that's, you know, uh, got a certain thickness and there's a certain amount of rainfall and stuff like that. So, so what is, what is the half-life there versus what is the half-life when it's in a preserved state for 80 years? Right. True. So I, I think that it's probably still, it's half-life is going to be now maybe more than a hundred years. So, um, because it's being effectively preserved. So, um, anyway, I mean, you, you, you ask what I think. I know I'm pooping all over your parade and the parades of many, but I, I, yeah, it's, I don't see, I guess if somebody has their own trailer and they're willing to drive however many hours it takes, you know, to get a couple dozen straw bales, because looking at, my own layout, I was thinking I'd probably need between 70 and 80 bales of straw, like a standard two-string straw bale, um, to make a four, six-inch thick 
insulation layer and then put the, the plastic sheeting over top of that. Um, so it's a lot of straw to get. So versus, you know, you're already on the property and you're getting the little pine boughs and stuff like that, that wood duff just from processing trees that that's probably going to be the easiest way to go. Well, another thing is, is that in our forest, there is um, probably a thousand times more than that of pine straw. So when I say pine straw... Right, just like dead needles, dead needles yeah. that would fall off the tree naturally, and you could go through with a rake and right. pull so some up. And pine trees have pretty long needles. Yeah, and and it's like you get to a spot where it's like there's you know pine straw, and it's like yeah, you can just go out there with a rake and get oodles and oodles of it. Now, granted, in a way, I'd rather leave it there, but at the same time, I'm kind of thinking that um, a lot of the uh, uh, straw, uh, pine straw that's down. A lot of the, a lot of the conifer trees, um, are, uh, are looking like weeds to me. So, you know, you're going to pick your plot. There's going to be a bunch of pine straw there. You have one acre. My guess is, is that by the end of you being there for three years, you will have taken down all of the conifer trees off of your plot. And then you'll have a new jungle starting made of all deciduous trees. So the other thing is, is that it's possible that, you know, you will have harvested a lot of conifer trees in order to build your structures from outside of your plot. Mm-hmm. The, the idea is that, yes, that pine straw is helping the ecosystem here recover. It's, it's helping to build soil where it is. Because, you know, it's acting as a mulch. Um, so a person would rightfully say, no, don't take that off because it's doing something there that's a very valuable and cool thing. And I'm kind of thinking, like, what I would rather do is take that space where all where that, where that pine tree is, take that pine tree out and replace it with several other species and hopefully plant a permi nearby. So that way, uh, they get a whole lot of hoot cultures put in there and stuff like that, and it gets remulched with something else. All right, Opalyn, you got your hand up. Yeah, I just wanted to share something I learned at the PDC this summer is that that pine straw will help keep that forest in that phase of evolutionary succession. So by removing it and using it on a wafati, um, or concentrating it in areas where you want that level of ecological succession, you're helping make space for earlier phases of ecological succession. Right. I, I, that's, that is all absolutely true. And, uh, and I kind of feel like, so Mark's going to have his plot and, uh, he's going to, he's going to, uh, use the organic material that was on his plot when he arrived, and he's going to go out and get a bunch of logs from my forest that's outside of his plot. And within uh, 400 feet of his plot, he's probably going to be snagging up a lot of material that's going to help to make his plot extra, extra magical. 
<laughs> and that's to be expected. And uh, so um, uh, in in time, I hope we've got like 20 or more uh, permaculture plots that are doing the exact same thing. And that in time, um, uh, the whole property might be one giant uh, garden jungle. Um, uh, and it's like, uh, uh, and there's like hardly any conifers. There, there might just be a couple patches of conifers left, not, not the amount of conifers that are there now. Absolutely. So, and would it also help pulling out some of those, uh, the, the pine needles? I don't know whether it's the accumulation of pine needles or I've also, uh, read that pine trees, uh, take up calcium out of the soil that is one or the other that causes acidic soil to, to increase. So maybe removing the, that pine straw from that area will help reduce the acidity of the soil over time. Well, I, and I believe that where you might have gotten that is from me, and I need to I need to thoroughly qualify it. This is my current theory on why is the pH so low around conifers, and I believe, and I, I have not confirmed this, I believe that the conifer trees take a, a lot of calcium out of the soil, and uh, that's what makes the pH drop so much. Um, and and I could be wrong, but this is my current theory that I'm working with. Um, I'm, I'm probably right, but okay, setting that aside. Um, I think that the, the pine needles, uh, I think pine needles have been tested and their pH is fairly neutral. Okay. Yeah, but that could partly be because they have a whole bunch of calcium in them. <laughs> 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 so, you know, that came from the soil. Um, so, I'm, uh, uh, I think that the big thing is, is that I like the idea that we try to assist our existing trees to become taller and fatter, uh, for now until we, you know, have more people. I know that, um, Fred is feeling like, um, the, the, I mean, we have thick, thick forests, tons of forests, thousands and thousands of trees. We've got tons of trees, and you guys have observed it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the forest is thick on the lab. I mean, it's a little more sparse at base camp because base camp is like a giant rock, and the lab is, you know, got deep, deep alluvial soils. Um, but Fred is thinking because, of course, when I bought it, I bought it from a timber company. The timber company, just before they sold it to me, they, they went through and they took all the big trees out. Because that's what gives the most money. And because they're going to take it to a sawmill, and the sawmill's going to be able to make a lot more lumber out of one fat tree than having three medium-sized trees. So um, uh, Fred is concerned that right now we don't have uh, very good trees for putting under the sawmill. And, uh, and so he's a little concerned about that. And so I'm kind of thinking like, oh no, they'll, we'll just be wasting more tree, um, than, you know, than would be nice. But, but no, we still have plenty of trees, plenty of big trees, tall trees. And 
five years from now, they'll be even taller and bigger. And, uh, uh, but there'll be fewer of them because we'll have, we'll have used some to build more structures and to make more lumber. But they're, I think right now, uh, the trees are still outpacing our efforts. And, um, I want to get to the point where we are, we are reducing the number of pounds of conifer on this property. I think like, like right now, I think that the pounds of, of conifer on the property is higher than when I arrived. But I, I'd like to get to the point where the total pounds is less and is dropping. Um, because at the same time, we are growing, um, thousands of little apple trees and, and black locusts and things of that nature that will be coming up and getting bigger soon. I know, if nothing else, like, have you guys seen that uh, cottonwood at the teepee? I was at the teepee, but I don't recall seeing any particular tree when it's I was like, there. All right. So, like, if you're standing in front of the teepee and you're looking at the door, it's a little behind the teepee and to the left. It would be, like, at 10 o'clock. Okay. And um, it's about 17 feet tall. And it was not there when we uh, first put in the Rocket Mass either, which would be eight years ago. And so it got to be that big in eight years. But it's a cottonwood. It's a broadleaf. So, you know, what a great tree. And not only that, what a great place to go pee. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a poop piece. It'll take it all up. So, um, in fact, I kind of, that gives me an idea. I, I, I just, this thing just popped into my head. We could put a dry outhouse behind the TV. Yeah. So, because, because of that massive cottonwood that's there right now, it would, it would take all that material up. No problem. This podcast is continued in part two. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.